Welcome everybody. It's good to see you guys this weekend and welcome everybody watching online and thanks for joining us as well. Thanks for making it such a priority to gather together with your with your church family. So it's good to be with you guys too and uh, good to be with you guys in the room here. We've spent the last few weeks in a series that we've called Resolved and uh, in this series we've been talking about that idea that if I'm going to accomplish kind of anything in life, there's a point that I have to resolve to do that. If it's sports or athletics or music or marriage or anything like that, uh, there's a point that I'm gonna have to kind of stop and decide that I'm gonna give myself to that direction, right? And my decisions and my options are gonna fall within that paradigm. I'm resolving to go that direction. And we've said that that same principle is true for us spiritually. Uh, that if I'm going to grow in the Lord, if I'm going to mature in Christ, if I'm going to serve God, be used by God, uh, there's a point that I have to resolve to place my life under Jesus' definition and direction and move my life that direction. I'm not going to like accidentally become spiritually mature or accidentally uh, be used by God in a certain way. I'm going to have to decide or resolve uh, to give myself to those things. And so we've been talking about that, and we've been talking about how important that is and how that is tied to our identity as a Christ follower. If you are a Christ follower, uh, the Bible says that when you accepted Christ, when you accepted the forgiveness of your sin, a bunch of things happened at once, and one of those things is that you're called out from what the Bible would call the world. The world is the thoughts, the morals, the systems, the ideologies that are absent Jesus. So the Bible usually calls those things the world, that I'm called out of the world, and I'm made a citizen of heaven. And so Peter says, I'm a chosen person, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. So our citizenship transfers to the kingdom of God, but as our residency stays here in the world, and we're in the world to be salt, light, have an impact, be ambassadors to the world of Christ's love as though he himself were making his appeal through us. And so Peter kind of lays all that out, the apostle Peter, and then kind of in that conversation, he says that frames the way that you are to view yourself as a Christ follower. He says this, he says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles that I am a resident of the world, but I am at home in Christ, in the kingdom of God. So I view myself as a foreigner and as an exile. I'm kind of on guard against the sinful desires of the world because they wage war against my soul. So the world isn't just different than Jesus. It's not like the world has its truth and the kingdom of God has its truth and they're just differing opinions. The Bible would say that the world is opposed to Christ, right? That sin wages war against us, and that spiritual battle is a battle that every follower of Jesus is involved in. So we have to resolve, we have to decide that we're gonna live our lives for Christ, yield our lives to Christ, and yield our lives to the definition and direction of his, word, of his word. And so we've been looking at that, and we started looking at 
I just called them the boys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we looked at these guys that were teenagers, young men, who grew up, we would say, knowing the truth of God, right? So they grew up in Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the place where the heart of God, the mind of God, the presence of God resided in the temple. God allowed Jerusalem to be given over to Babylon, Jerusalem and Babylon in the Bible in the Old Testament are literal places. Babylon is a place that is worldly. It's opposed to Jerusalem. It's not just different. It's opposed to it. And so Babylon will kind of stand for uh, or stand against everything that Jerusalem stands for. These boys were taken to Babylon. They were put through a re-education process. The goal was to make them Babylonian, to get them to leave their roots and tie into the things of Babylon. And in the middle of that process, the Bible says that they resolved not to defile themselves. They said, even though we're here, we're gonna cause our life to be defined and directed by the truths of Jerusalem. Babylon, Jerusalem are literal places in the Bible, and then they both become metaphorical places in the Bible, especially kind of at the end of time, that Jerusalem represents the heart, the mind of God. There'll be a new Jerusalem one day after Christ returns, and that's all the heart, the mind, the seed of, we would say, Christ. And then Babylon, metaphorically, also at the end of time, represents kind of the heart and the mind or the seat of the evil one, and it's in opposition to the people of God and to the ideas and the truths of who God is. So we've been talking about that and saying that's the idea, that the people of God are kind of the people of Jerusalem, that the world is kind of Babylon and its schemes and its patterns, and we who are citizens of the kingdom of God but residents of the world, how do we navigate that And how do we do that in such a way that we honor God? How do we resolve to do that? And we've said what that does is it causes us to live in attention. So as people of God who are residents of Babylon, we look at the culture around us and we say that I am not defined by my culture, but as a Christ follower, I am called to serve those who are defined by their culture. Uh, I do not find value in the culture But as a Christ follower, I love those who do find value in the culture. And the culture is not to have authority over me, but I am to honor those who have authority within it. And it's this tension that we live in and how do we do that well. So I've been talking about that for the last few weeks. Website, app, podcast, everything's there. It's been kind of a linear conversation, might be worth catching up on. But we're going to wrap up this conversation this weekend, and we're going to do that by looking at Daniel chapter 6. So on the app or on your phones, Daniel chapter 6, if you're here in the room with us, it's uh, page 725 and the Bible's in their chairs. If you're at home and you're watching at things at home, I have no idea what page number it is. You're just going to have to look it up on your own. Uh, but grab your Bibles, Daniel chapter 6. And let me walk you through this. What I've been doing is uh, I've been editing or truncating the the scriptures that we're reading just for the sake of time. So I'm going to do that here to frame up kind of the story and where we're at, what we're going to draw through it. But as always, 
I encourage you to read Daniel chapter six word for word. Always, and anytime you're in the Bible is a good time, right? So always read those things on your own. Read more than what we talk about on the weekend. But for the sake of time, I'm gonna edit, edit it a little bit. And let's look at this. Let's look at Daniel's resolve. Let's look at the patterns of his life. Let's look at the tension that he lived in and then we'll draw it into us as well, okay? So verse three, chapter six, book of Daniel. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king had made plans to place him over the entire empire. Then the other high officers began searching for some fault in the way that Daniel was handling government affairs. So they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So let's get our head around this for a second. At the end of Daniel chapter five, there's a regime change, right? So King Belshazzar, the very last part of Daniel chapter five, is assassinated. He's taken out, and the Babylonian empire falls at that point. It falls to the empire of the Medes and the Persians, and Darius, who is the king of the Medes and the Persians, takes over the Babylonian empire. At the end of chapter five, Belshazzar, the last Babylonian king, doesn't even know who Daniel is. He's not in a place of influence. He's not in a place of power anymore. But in this short time, the Bible says, between the fall of Babylon and the rise of Darius, Daniel has once again risen to power. And so he's risen, he has become trustworthy to the king, he is somebody that the king looks at and he knows that he's faithful, responsible, and completely trustworthy, and Darius is about ready to place Daniel, we would probably think of him as a governor over this region that he has just conquered. In the middle of all that, political drama arises and the high officials, the administrators, who were probably with Darius when he rode into Babylon. They don't know Daniel, he's a carryover from the previous administration. They're jealous of how quickly Darius is trusting him. They begin to plot against him, verse five, chapter six. Finally, these men said, because he is responsible and trustworthy and faithful, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with his God. Verse six, so they went to the king and said, the king should make a law that will strictly be be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human except you, will be thrown into the lion's den and sign this law so it cannot be changed. So King Darius signs the law. So they watch Daniel being elevated to power. They don't want that to happen. They want to undermine Daniel and get him out of the way. And so they did what all smart people do when interacting with the king. They appealed to his ego. And it gives you a little bit of an insight into Darius and how he thought because his officials came to him and said, hey, we got an idea. Is it an infrastructure project? No. Is it tax policy? No. Is it about the environment? No. What's your idea? Here's our idea. You should sign a law that people have to worship you. 
And for the next 30 days, if they worship anything or anybody but you, you should execute them. And Darius thought that was such a good idea that he signed it. And he signed the law as the rulers of the Medes and the Persians. In the ancient world, the Medes and the Persians had a policy with law that once it was put into place, it could not be revoked. It could expire, but it couldn't be revoked. And that's what they're playing on. Just for 30 days, Darius. You know, you don't want to get too egotistical, big guy. Just have people worship you for a month. And he signed the law. The law cannot be altered and it cannot be changed. And these high officials knew that. And so they go and they're looking for Daniel, who they want to depose and dispose of and get him out of the way. But they knew they could only do that if they caused Daniel to go against the law of his God. Law number one of the one true God is, you shall have no other gods before me. They go to Daniel, verse 10. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home, knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he, would, as he has always done, giving thanks to his God. The officials went together to Daniel's house. They found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about his law. They told the king, Daniel is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. However, in the evening, the men went to the king and said, your majesty, you know that no law that the king signs can be changed. So at last, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the lion's den. The king said to him, may your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. Very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, whom you serve so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, yes. God sent his angels to shut the lion's mouth so they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight. And have not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed in order that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. And then the king went, found these officials that caused this treachery, threw them in the lions. And the Bible says the lions devoured them before they hit the ground, right? And it's political intrigue in the ancient world And Daniel is in the thick of this. He's in the thick of this. Of this ever-changing, always altering process and these ever-changing, always altering patterns of Babylon. But he had resolved that he would not defile himself, that he would honor his God. And he now has done that through a lifetime and is doing it again. So let's look at this a little bit. And I want you to see a pattern in Daniel's life that I think is a pattern that as Christ followers, we need to pick up. I think is a pattern that will serve us very well in the world that we live in today. 
And I think it's a pattern that will make the gospel of Jesus clear through our lives as we're ambassadors for Christ while being residents of earth as though Jesus himself were making his appeal through us, all right? So let's look at this a little bit. When we think about Daniel and what he was doing and why he was doing it, he kind of laid down some markers for us and, and things that we can lock onto and get our head around that will become patterns for us. And, and here's the first one that kind of jumped out to me. When, when Daniel heard about the law, right, and he heard about the law and as he was serving the king and he goes through a regime change and all the politics shift and all the economy shifts and everything that comes with one empire falling and another one uh, rising to power, Daniel laid out something that I think we could pick up on, and here it is. If we're going to take a hit, take a hit for the truth of Christ and nothing else. If you're gonna take a hit, take a hit for the truth of Christ and nothing else. Look at this, I find this fascinating. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Daniel, who's in government, and at this point now has been in government for nearly 70 years. He's on his third or fourth administration. His professional occupation is in an arena that is not known for its honesty, its, its ethics, its authenticity, or its transparency. See, some things are eternal. So this is his life and where he lives it. And when these men look at his life and how he lives it, they can't find anything to bring as a charge against him. 70 years in government and they can't find anything to bring as a charge against him unless it has something to do with his relationship with God. And so they form a scheme and they appeal to the ego of a king and they cause trickery that will cause the king to stand in between Daniel and his relationship with God and it brings about persecution on his life, right? Jesus says something interesting in Matthew chapter five. He says this. He says, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of God is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in this way. And one of those ancient prophets that Jesus is talking about is Daniel. Jesus would look and say, this is good. When people lie about you, when they mock you, when they cause trickery, when they bring false accusations against you, because you follow me, see, when you do that, you're being persecuted. Paul calls it sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You're being persecuted. You're being attacked for the same reasons that Jesus was persecuted and attacked. And be glad, be happy. It's a good thing. Because it means that you are modeling and proclaiming and making Jesus make sense to the people around you. 
And it also means that there's no other part of your life that can be brought up to question or brought up for attack. Now think about this for a second, guys. When I think about this, and when I think about what Daniel was able to do, it's a very, very challenging thing for me. He's in politics, we know politics, right? We, most of us have been alive long enough to go through a few political cycles. What happens in politics, there's always an October what? There's always an October surprise, right? Right before the election, the video comes out, the picture comes out, the affair comes out, the statement comes out, the cell phone recording comes out. There's always a surprise. There's always a sneak attack because when you're in politics, People are looking and they're looking at your life and they're looking for dirt and they're looking for accusations and they're looking for evidence because they want to undermine you. It's the nature of the political system. And that is exactly what's happening to Daniel. He has lived a completely public life for 72 or 70 plus years. And they're looking for the affair and they're looking for the lie and they're looking for the comment and they're looking for the way that he cheated and they're looking for the way he double-crossed and they're looking for the half-truth that he found and they can't find anything and so they have to go to his relationship with God. And this is the question that I would ask you that's a very, very difficult question is if somebody looked at your life, would they come up short that way? It's very, very challenging to me if you were looking for dirt on me, how hard would it be to find? If you looked at my posts, my finances, my business dealings, my relationships, my internet history, if you looked at how I treated my teammates and my classmates and the people that I used to date, if you interviewed my kids, if you interviewed my wife, if you found the people who really knew me and you were looking to accuse me, how hard would it be to find the evidence to support the accusation that you would bring against the king? When you think about what was going on with Daniel and the thoroughness of his integrity that 70 years of a public life and all they could figure out to do was to trip him up in his relationship with God. If you think about Daniel, when I think about Daniel, I don't think about his courage, although I think he was courageous. I, I don't think about uh, his place of influence, although I think he was in places of influence. The thread that you see in his life is in chapter one, verse eight, he resolved not to defile himself. And a lifetime later, his enemies can't dig up dirt. The New Testament says that we're gonna have a great reputation with outsiders. 
that we're to live such extraordinary lives that there's no accusation that can be made against us. Why? Because when an accusation is made against a child of God, it's really an accusation against God. That's what Jesus is saying. He's like, if they persecute you, they're not persecuting you, they're persecuting me. Good job. They think you're me. But when they accuse you, they're not accusing you, they're accusing me. Because they think that you're me. And in a world that would look at the people of God and say, there's a lot of dirt on you guys. The people of God have to stop and take stock. And if our lives are patterned after the patterns of Babylon and our responses are equal to the responses of Babylon and our plans are the plans of Babylon and our goals and our wins and our values are no different, then our voice is no different. Daniel could not be accused of anything but trustworthiness, faithfulness, responsibility, service, and godliness. It's a great standard. It's a great position. It's a great example to steer our lives toward. Now, in the middle of all that, He's going through that, and they pull the trick, right? They play to Darius's ego. Yeah, everybody should worship me for 30 days. And so he signs the law. And they knew what they were doing because they knew that Daniel could not worship another god beside the one true God, that his faith, his integrity, his values would not let that happen. So they worked in such a way that they were able to place the values of Babylon in direct conflict with the values of the people of God. By the way, that happens all the time. But that was the ploy that they used and how they worked it. And so Daniel showed us something else in his resolve, and it's this, that when the values of God and the values of men are in conflict, we are left with a choice. When the values of God and the values of men are in conflict, we are left with a choice because the values of Babylon and the values of Jerusalem are not just different. They're not just other options. It's not their truth and our truth. The values of Babylon are opposed. They wage war against the soul of those who have have adopted the values of God. So it's inevitable as a citizen of the kingdom of God and a resident of the world, I am going to be put into this place where the values of men are opposed or push against the values of God. Babylon's laws about power and love and submission to authority and generosity and morality and forgiveness and sin are opposed or they're waging war against the truth of God. And there is no middle ground to be found in that. Jesus would say, what does light and darkness have in common? 
the Apostle Paul would say, how, how can you, you cannot fuse those two things together. They are completely different things. You don't add a little bit of light and a little bit of darkness and go with some gray. Light wipes out darkness and the absence of light creates darkness. You cannot morph these two things together. So as a Christ follower, when I am a, king, a citizen of the kingdom of God but a resident of the world, I am not going to be able to find a middle ground. It's impossible. The values of the world are going to conflict with the values of God. The only way that you can get the values of the world to cooperate or to work with or to compromise with the values of God is if you pervert, distort, and dilute the truth of God. Other than that, they cannot coexist. Anytime that that happens, it's because the people of God surrendered to the truth of God in one way or another. So knowing that that is the conflict, I'm a foreigner, I'm an exile, I'm not in the world or I'm not of this world, it's just not the way that it works. Knowing that that's gonna happen, I am going to be left with a choice. And the people of God inevitably are gonna have to look at the kingdom of Babylon, the worldly system, and say, I will not participate in that. And the people of God, when faced with the choice, do I lock into the values of men or do I lock into the values of God? The people of God are to choose the truth and the values of God. We're to stand for the truth of God. Now let's talk about this for a second. When I say that, Many times people will be like, that's right, tell them, Jeff. And I'm like, okay, I, I'll, I'll tell them, right? And so you have to stand for the truth of God. And what we'll often think about when we get into those conflicts is we'll think uh, in, in an oppositional manner. I'm gonna stand for the truth of God by telling off Babylon. I'm gonna stand for the truth of God by making sure Babylon knows how dumb they are. I'm gonna protest Babylon. I'm gonna scream at Babylon. I'm gonna yell at Babylon. Daniel's response was fascinating because when the truth of God, the law of God conflicted with the law of Babylon, he didn't scream, he didn't yell, he didn't file a lawsuit, he didn't put together a protest, he didn't work on a social media campaign, he didn't try to raise up and run another candidate. What did he do? What does it look like to choose the law of God over the law of man? Well, it looks like quiet confidence in our true king. It looks like quiet confidence in our true king. What did Daniel do? He went home and he knelt down as usual. Just as he had always done, giving thanks to God. I find that fascinating. He didn't complain to God. He didn't call for fire and brimstone on God. He wasn't like smite him, God, destroy him, move him to Michigan. He didn't do any of that. He gave thanks to God. He went home, he knelt down as he had always done. The chaos of Babylon, the godlessness of Babylon, catch this, the opposition of Babylon, ready, does not dictate the behavior of the people of God. We don't fight fire with fire. You don't fight Babylon with Babylon. The apostles specifically say, don't repay evil with evil. 
There's always chaos in Babylon. There's always a regime change. There's always their wacky wisdom that they put around. Nothing new about that. It does not dictate the people of God's behavior. Daniel just looked and said, I have a king, Darius, and you're not him. And so I place myself in the safety and under the authority of the true king. And I'm just gonna go home and interact with my king like I always do. Well, it's illegal. Well, I'll be at the window. (laughs) I don't care what you say. I don't care what law you have. I'm not gonna scream about it. I'm gonna do what I know God has asked me to do. It looks like true confidence, quiet confidence in the true king. It looks like service without cynicism of the authority placed above you. He didn't go and start gossiping about the king. Oh, can you believe this guy's ego? He's making us worship him now. He didn't go to Facebook, to the king, to the king and your attitude. He didn't talk to his fellow employees. He didn't bash the king. He wasn't the least bit surprised that a Babylonian king acted like one. There's nothing shocking to Daniel about that. So he served the king. How? Faithfully? In a trustworthy way? With responsibility? He did his very, very best for the king. So much so that when he placed his true confidence in the true king and he served the king above him in a way, the king grew to love Daniel and trusted that Daniel loved him. What does this standing for the law of God look like? It looks like a loving and trusted relationship. Look at this, this is fascinating. What happened here? The king, when he found out that Daniel got caught up in all this, was so deeply troubled, he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. After he was put in a lion's den, he got up the next morning, he hurried out to the lion's den, where uh, when he got there, he called out in anguish to Daniel. You have to catch this, this is a big deal. This is the ancient world, this isn't the modern world. The king is God, he has the power over life and death. The king signed the law that you have to worship him and the price for breaking that law is the death penalty. That's what it's like to be king. The king can kill you for whatever he wants to kill you for. The king can do anything that he wants. Nobody has the ability to check the power of the king. So the king, what's the king like? Well, he's an arrogant little booger because when they suggested we should have worship the king month, he was like, great idea, and he signed the law. Daniel defied that law written by that king. He looked at that king and said, I'm not doing it. He defied that law, and that's the death penalty. Anybody else who defies the king gets a death penalty. Daniel defies the king, but the king is deeply troubled that he has to put Daniel to death. The king couldn't sleep that night, called out in anguish because he was so concerned about the man who just defied him. What does that tell you about their relationship? 
See, Daniel, he had a true king. He's like, Darius, you're, you're not my king. You're my boss, but like, I don't worship you. I'm not going to. And Darius, I, I don't have an attitude about you. You're Babylonian. You act like it. It's, it's all right. But somehow, the king loved Daniel. He wasn't like deeply inconvenienced, cried out in frustration. He loved Daniel, and Daniel loved him. Guys, think about this for a second. Daniel stared down Babylon. I will not participate in your law. But somehow Babylon felt loved. Somehow Daniel, Daniel's integrity and his servanthood and his humility and his submission to authority and his compassion and his grace and his desire to do things with excellence, somehow that was so invested into the well-being of the king and whatever the king's priorities were, that when the king got caught up in the trick that could only be had if you tied it to Daniel's faithfulness, and Daniel looked at the king and said, I'm not doing that. It didn't enrage the king, it broke his heart. The example of this, this exile, this foreigner, this guy that does not claim to make Babylon his home, somehow we would say today was salt and light and brought love and relationship to a person that was committed by their nature to waging war against his soul. But Daniel didn't budge But what led to him standing? What that standing looked like was a guy loving and serving and giving himself to a man who was really his enemy. Here's the last thing I want us to see. Daniel was already victorious when he went into the lion's den. He was already victorious when he went in the lion's den. This is a big deal, right? Look what happens. Darius goes down. He's like, did you make it, Daniel? And Daniel's like, yep, I'm good. God sent an angel to shut the lion's mouth so they would not hurt me for I've been found innocent in his sight and I have not wronged you, your majesty. Darius runs down there. Daniel, I'm good, all good. I love Jesus, Jesus hates cats, I'm good, <laughs> right? And so, I'm good. Why was he good? He was good, why did God bless him? Because he was innocent before God, and he was innocent before Darius. Daniel was already victorious when he went into the lion's den. Guys, this is a big deal. When I was growing up in church, I was growing up to Sunday school, I go to Sunday school, 
And my teacher would look at me, and she would teach me. Mrs. Riggs was her name. Great, great lady. Horrible teacher, but great lady. And so she would read the curriculum book to us. I won't really say she would teach it, but she would read the curriculum book, and she would read about the Bible heroes. And we would read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we would read about... Daniel, and she would tell those stories with it used to be called flannel graph. Anybody under 50 doesn't even know what those are, but she would tell those stories and lay it out for us, and we would watch that play out. And here's the way the story was always told. The boys were heroes, and there's gonna be a moment, Jeffaroo, there's gonna be a moment that you're gonna have to stand up for God. And I was like, oh man, I'm gonna have to stand up for God. There's gonna be a moment you don't know. It could be the Russians, it could be, who knows, but you're gonna have to stand up for God where somebody's gonna put you in a life and death situation for Jesus. I'm like, oh man, a life and death situation for Jesus. And if that moment ever happens, when you face the fiery furnace or you face the lion's den, will you have the courage to face the furnace and to face the lion's den? So you grow up with the story in your mind where there's this climactic moment in the movie where it's just you and it's just all the enemies of God and you have to dare to be a Daniel and you have to have the courage to be a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and I don't know what'll happen. I mean, there's some people, I heard about them other places and they get into these moments and it's life and death and they have to make it and will they take the bullet? Will they go to the hanging? Will they face the fiery furnace? Will they face the lion's den, man, oh man, if that ever happens to me, I hope God gives me supernatural superpowers so that I can do what Daniel did and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, and if I can have courage, and if I can make it through that moment, then God will do something supernatural in me, and then I can write a book, and I can be like Daniel. Here's the thing. That's not what the stories are about. This story, ready, has very little to do with the lion's den. Daniel didn't deserve to go to the lion's den, and everybody knew it, from the guys who tricked him to the king who got tricked to Daniel himself to God. The story isn't about the lions. The lions is just the natural conclusion of the story. It was just a method of a death penalty. That's it. They threw people in the lion's den all the time. They had a lion's den. Right? You're going to use it. The story's not about the lion's den. The story's about Daniel's innocence. You want to dare be a Daniel... Don't worry about me throwing a lion's den. Worry about your internet searches. You want to dare to be a Daniel? Don't worry about a lion's den. You're not going to face a lion's den. Worry about how you conduct yourself in class. About the business deal. About the amount of hours that you're logging while you're working from home about the half-truth that you tell your spouse. The story's not about lion's den. The story's about Daniel's resolve. Seventy years later, 
when he was a teenager, he resolved he wasn't going to defile himself. I'm innocent. Did you survive? Yeah, God shut their mouths. Well, how come? Well, I didn't do anything. Like, God knows that. Those guys know that. You know that. (laughs) Guys, this last year, this last year is a clarifying year for the people of God. We're at this very interesting moment in history. And all kinds of things are happening around us. Babylon's always gonna be Babylon. There's nothing new about Babylon. Don't worry about it. It's always gonna be Babylon. It's just new forms of sin. That's it. Well, it's not like it used to be. Well, let's talk about the sins that used to be. I mean, it's just new forms of sin. It's no big deal. It's normal. The story is not about Babylon being Babylon. It's always going to be Babylon. The story is about those boys deciding who they were going to be. They went to Babylonian schools. They probably married Babylonian girls. They worked in the Babylonian system. They were in the Babylonian government. And the people of God do not fit into Babylonian boxes. You are not what you do for a living. You are not who people say that you are. You are not your background, you are not your race, you are not a Democrat, you are not a Republican, you are not a liberal, you are not a conservative, you're not even a North American. You're a child of the Most High God, a citizen of his kingdom, a holy people. Babylon's gonna be Babylon. That's not the question. How do you change Babylon? You you don't. It's literally gonna play like that through the end of time. That's what the book says. But Daniel was Daniel. The boys were the boys. And they weren't perfect. And there's parts of their story that we don't know 70 years later, they can't find dirt. 70 years later, I'm innocent before the Lord. 70 years later, and I'm innocent before you, your majesty. And Babylon grieved at the thought of losing the exile. Guys, I love you. I do. I hope you know that. 
we gotta get our heads someplace else. You're not gonna change Babylon by trying to change Babylon. You're gonna change Babylon by allowing God to change you. And this bitterness and this fear and this resentment in any form of disunity, in any aspect of godliness, that's not Babylon's fault. The people of God must be changed by the person of God. And as I love Christ, and I allow Christ to love me, I'll love my neighbor. It doesn't matter what their opinion is. It doesn't matter what their sin is. It doesn't matter what their history is. It's all the same. But this is the hour that God has called this part of his church. And this is our task. We got sent from Jerusalem to Babylon, so to say. It's our job. And our resolve to love as we've been loved, to forgive as we've been forgiven, to love our enemy, to love our neighbor as ourself. Babylon does not dictate the behavior, the mindset, or the heartbeat of the people of God. Only the person of God does that. It's got to stop. Daniel's just a kid who made a decision. He just resolved that that's who he was going to be. And from that resolve, see, God used those boys in ways they were not changed by Babylon. They brought the hope and the truth of who God was to Babylon, almost like God planned it and sent them there for that very purpose. Jesus, help us with this. Lord, we have to rest in you. Lord, I believe that you're clarifying for your people right now. It's good for us. Thank you. Persecution is good. Uncertainty is good. It reminds us who our king is. So God, bring conviction to us where we have sinned if we are not found innocent in your eyes or in the eyes of man, confront us with that. Help us to confess that to you. God, strengthen us. There's a certainty that we have in you. It doesn't matter what happens around us. Strengthen us, God. 
give us courage. I bet the lion's den was scary. But in the furnace and the den, you're in those places. And make us resolute. When we're faced with all the little temptations of every day and with the big stuff. God, let us live life in such a way that no accusation can be made against you and your love and your truth and your hope is what's proclaimed through us. Press into our hearts, God, in these still moments.